0: Well, good morning and welcome. The Theology Symposium, which Jesse and I attended last week, began with an impassioned plea from the Reverend Simon Ponsonby, um, who's a wonderful speaker, if you ever get a chance to hear him then, please do, that in all our study and teaching of Scripture, we should always remember to prioritize the preaching of the gospel. And for the pastors and preachers present, which was most of us, that was a timely call, as it were, back to basics. Right at the beginning of a week when we were going to get into some quite difficult and complex stuff in the conference. And as it was supposed to, good old Simon Ponsonby got me thinking. What actually is the gospel? How do we most effectively communicate it in our day and age? And is that uh, communication just the responsibility of preachers, or is it something that the whole church needs to engage in? So this morning, I want us to talk about the dreaded E-word, evangelism, how we communicate our faith to those who don't yet share it. St. Paul famously said, Woe is me, if I don't preach the gospel, 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, And it seems to me the, uh, the church has been quoting that out of context ever since in an effort to get us all to feel the same impassioned way that Paul did. But most Christians, when we hear those words, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel, hello, woe, we don't actually feel inspired and impassioned at all. We just feel guilty. Because we know that St. Paul said, be imitators of me. And if we're honest, we don't actually feel the same passion for the gospel that he did at all. When I personally first bumped into Jesus at the age of 18 and began stumbling my way into his kingdom, I soon joined uh, the first evangelical church I came across, and I quickly became aware of two things. First, these people were extremely serious about the Bible. They were extremely serious as well, a lot of the time. Uh, And almost, they were so serious about the Bible, it almost seemed to me with my Catholic upbringing that it was to the point of idolatry. And secondly, they were very serious about heaven and hell. They saw it as their responsibility to see to it that as many people as possible came to the right destination at their life's end. Or at least, they seemed to be serious about it. Because it didn't take very long before I noticed that whenever we talked about evangelism, and boy, did we talk about evangelism, it tended to result in more guilt than action. All the sermons we heard, all the books we read, all the conferences we went to, never seemed to result in that desired outcome, that wonderful explosion of one-on-one evangelistic encounters as friend shares faith with friend. And the organized evangelistic events, things like Christian Union missions when I was a student, didn't really work either. For all the hype, the energy, the embarrassment it caused us, very few people actually came to faith, and they just might have done anyway. It seems to me that some churches talk a lot about this E-word, but never actually do anything about it. Others do it and it doesn't really work, and some churches barely mention it even at all, and I hope we're not becoming one of those. I think we have to do better than this. As the song by Paul Simon goes, I can't run, but I can walk much faster than this. The Great Commission, Jesus' last words before his ascension, tells us that the Christians in every age and nation must make disciples. So we have to be a church that thinks and talks a lot about evangelism and does it too. But let's talk and think about it correctly. Then maybe we can do it in a way that actually works. My title for this morning's talk is Four G's of the Gospel. I want to talk about guilt evangelism, gift evangelism, group evangelism, and God's evangelism. Firstly, guilt evangelism. I can see many of you are gearing up for that already. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.16, if we could just pop that up on the screen. Um, this seems to have been the model traditionally practiced by many churches and organizations. And if so, it's not surprising that people give up. Because some of the evangelism that we've seen and been in the past has been a terrible advertisement for the kingdom of God. I'm not saying God can't speak through anyone and anything. And I believe he is pleased with our sacrifice, if nothing else, even when we try and fail. But let's not be unrealistic about it. John Wimber, in his work as a church growth consultant, used to ask pastors and uh, and mission leaders and things like that two questions. He said, one, what business are you in? Two, how's business? And if the person was unwise enough to answer the first question, uh, reaching a generation for Christ, then when the second question came along, how's business, Um, it was a bit of a crippler, wasn't it? Because if our aim is to win a generation for Christ, and we've seen 10 or 100 or even 10,000 converts, then business is going really badly. Half a billion would be a decent start. So it's about reining in what we say about ourselves and actually setting targets that we can possibly achieve with God's help. It should be something that's just out of reach, so we need God to engage in the work with us. Wimber was also fond of saying, your church is perfectly designed to get exactly the results you're getting. We will never see success if we refuse to recognize failure. And as far as I can see, guilt evangelism has never worked. Perhaps precisely because it is mainly inspired not by love, but by guilt. Guilt. Our motivations have a way of showing through however we try and cover them up, however dishonest we are with people. and It doesn't look like good news to our friends when we're obviously stressed and embarrassed talking about it. So in vain does the preacher ask his congregation, how you'll feel on judgment day when your neighbor turns to you and says, you never told me. That was my Ian Paisley tribute. I've never actually heard him do that talk, but, but I've heard it many, many times. I just thought it sounded better in a Northern Irish accent. Those of us who, who have the privilege of preaching need to keep that constantly in view. But we have an opportunity to prepare and to speak freely to people who have, after all, come to church. For the rest of us, it would be true to say that if we haven't already found a way of communicating the gospel to our neighbor, then a, a boatload of guilt is not going to help us. Guilt is a poor motivator. But I want to ask, is guilt even appropriate in this sphere? My grandfather was a Methodist missionary in China for many years before he returned to become professor of church history at Glasgow. In his excellent little book, which I was reading the other day, they converted our ancestors about the first um, missionaries to this country. He makes the following shocking statement. In every age... The spread of Christianity has been the work not of the generality of Christians, but of the more devout few. The modern evangelical has been brought up to think that everyone has to be out evangelizing the world all the time. So that comment flies right in the face of our received ideas. Yet it was informed by a lifetime's study and experience. So was Grandpa right? And if we unpick 1 Corinthians 9.16 a little bit and look at the context in which Paul says it, we soon see that he was speaking from a very similar perspective to my grandpa, that of a professional missionary. And in fact, the preceding 15 verses, the whole of that chapter up to that point, are devoted to saying one thing, that those who proclaim the gospel are entitled to be paid for doing so. Now, he and his buddy Barnabas had actually been self-supporting, but he's saying the church should feel ashamed of that rather than otherwise. As one specifically calls to the task, he can say with feeling, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. But that does not mean woe to all of us if we don't. 1 Corinthians makes my grandfather's point. Most of us are perfectly entitled to leave evangelism to the professionals. That is, if we're prepared to pay them properly. Still, the stats show that some major adjustment is needed. The church in Britain is shrinking, not growing. And if the answer is not for us all to become great Billy Graham-like evangelists, or people like St. Paul himself, what is the solution? Certainly not guilt evangelism. Tried it, didn't work. I think the Lord wants to announce an amnesty to all of us failed evangelists this morning and a fresh start. What might that fresh start look like? Point two, gift evangelism. The traditional view which favors every person evangelism is often justified on the basis of 1 Peter 3.15, which tells us to be always ready to answer anyone who asks the reason for our hope. But I think that's quite a heavy burden to place on one verse, which was actually talking about how we should act under persecution when questioned actually on the rack, as it were, rather than about going out into the marketplace with a soapbox and shouting at people. Then there's Colossians 6, verse 6, that tells us to let our speech be with grace seasoned with salt so that we may know how to answer each one. And you'll notice that in each case, what it's talking about is how we answer a question that is being asked. Rather than accosting people in the street and giving them a leaflet that says, turn or burn, uh, or uh, are you washed in the blood of the lamb? That goes down well. If people aren't asking, perhaps we need to ask ourselves why they're not. But we're going to come to that. But since we all should be prepared to give an answer... Here comes a very simple four-point synopsis of the gospel. And it is simple pimple and pipsqueak, as my girls used to say. Number one, God made the world and everything in it good and put mankind in charge. Life was eternal, harmonious, and perfect. Genesis 1 and 2. Two, humanity disobeyed God and chose to go its own way bringing sin, suffering, death, and all kinds of hardship into creation. Our fellowship with a holy and loving creator has become broken and twisted, and that's how it's been ever since. Genesis 3. Three, the inevitable consequence of sin is death. But God sent his only son, Jesus, to take on our humanity. And though he lived a sinless life, he voluntarily died our death in our place, taking our sins away forever and restoring us to a right relationship with God. John 316 to 18. Four, he now invites us to respond. We have a choice. We can go on as we are and take our chances, or we can turn away from our sins and believe the good news that God's kingdom has finally come. Mark 1:15. That is the gospel in a nutshell. If we have that in our minds or scribbled on a piece of paper in our Bibles or somewhere that we can find it, on our phone or somewhere, then we've got an answer to those who ask. You won't find all of that in one place in the Bible, but once you understand it, you will see echoes of it all over the Bible. When Jesus came, he simply preached Mark 1.15, that part about repenting and believing. That's because everyone he spoke to in his culture already knew the stuff about the creation being good and the fall of man. And since Jesus hadn't died yet, it was a bit difficult for him to talk about the cross in any direct way. But when we are answering someone's questions today, we have to tell them the bad news before they'll understand the good. Most people know all too well that everything is not right with the world. But most of them blame it on God. I don't believe in God, he's nasty, he killed my brother. Hmm. The Bible turns that worldview upside down. It's actually all our fault, us humans. And once each of us takes our personal share of that common responsibility, accepts Jesus Christ as our Saviour and Lord and turns back to God, then he will start using us to put the world to rights. And those are the kinds of things you can say next time someone asks you what a Christian believes. As to the soapbox in the market square, I think we can safely leave that to the professionals. I think that's the biblical view. I refer in this section to gift evangelism because God has gifted each of us differently. And each one of us exercises those gifts in our day-to-day encounters with people. As we do it, we'll naturally draw people towards Jesus like we put it in our church strapline, helping people make connections with God. If God sometimes uses you in healing, then why not just offer to pray for the sick and injured people that you meet in everyday life? If he uses you in the spoken gifts, like the word of knowledge, word of wisdom, prophecy, encouragement, then why not use that in your workplace? And the same if we are pastorally gifted. Why not use it with the mums at the the school gate and stuff like that? As long as we acknowledge where all this wisdom and power come from we can't fail to draw people to Jesus for further reading i suggest John Wimber's book power evangelism but there's a second reason for talking about gift evangelism too and that is that some people are especially gifted at explaining our faith to others now i want to read together ephesians 4 11 to 16 It'll be in a slightly different version on the screen than the one I read. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, I don't believe verse 11 is supposed to be in any way an exhaustive list, but rather by way of example, the four different gift sets he mentions all work together towards the same end apostles start churches off prophets deliver God's healing, correction, encouragement evangelists add more people to the number and pastor teachers help them to get their thinking and life sorted out but all four of those roles and I suggest many others too work towards one aim verse 12 the equipping of the saints to building up the body of Christ until we all together attain maturity we verses 13 to 15 and become part of a church that is quite naturally building itself up, just as a natural process, verse 16. Here the evangelist is seen as quite distinct from the others, but something's gone wrong if we elevate that person, let's call her her, the she evangelist, in our thinking to some unsustainable position. Because Paul sees her as a team player in the wider context of a church. When Billy Graham came to Scotland the year before I was born, we're told that church attendance nationally doubled in size in the space of just a few weeks. That's the work of a great evangelist. But within five years, it was right back where it started. We can only conclude that that happened because new churches were not planted and the existing churches didn't receive the new converts properly. There was a marked lack of apostles to form these people into new churches. Prophets to knock a few heads together. To knock them and the receiving churches into shape. Pastor teachers who are ready to meet people where they were and answer the questions they were actually asking. It was a glory story (laughs) turned to a gory story by the deficiencies of the church. And I guess that moves us on quite neatly to number three, group evangelism, third G. I suppose to an extent this is just another way of looking at gift evangelism. As the evangelists evangelize and the rest of us exercise our own gifts, both outside the church and in it, the body builds up its own momentum, just as we saw in that Ephesians passage. I was rather uncomplimentary earlier about the first church I went to after I met Jesus, and I want to redress the balance now. On the one hand, all the various initiatives and programs for evangelism came to nothing. But in the meantime, quite organically and rather sneakily, God was forming a group and bringing people to himself through it faster than any program we could have devised and discipling them too. It happened in the youth group I was part of. One day, some of us just started praying and studying the Bible in a little side room while all the others were playing table tennis and larking about. The week after that, there were more of us praying than were playing. People came with questions about life, and those of us who were Christians answered as best we could from our feeble understanding of Scripture. I don't think our answers were very but uh, but maybe our faith was, because one by one they started coming to faith. What had, became, what had been a merely a social group had become a distinctly Christ-focused group, and people were making commitments, one after another, to Jesus. The curate in charge was understandably concerned that we become too Christian, in inverted commas, then we'd lose our, well, yeah, he was afraid we'd lose our outward focus. And there is a point, you know, we all know how groups of Christians tend to become inward-looking. But in fact, the opposite thing happened. People started bringing their friends. And over the next couple of years, that little group of table tennis players and coffee drinkers grew to 50-ish committed Christians, and it went on growing and growing. I personally had the privilege of praying for salvation with 12 young people in the space of the three or four years I was a member, seven of them in a single year. And that wasn't because I'm an evangelist. I'm not. It wasn't because there was any organized evangelism. There wasn't. As in the Ephesians passage, people were just being themselves, doing what they were gifted to do, with no pressure. And the group dynamic was sufficient to draw people in. And one by one, people just fell into the kingdom of God. Whoever turned up, whether they came from council estates or stately homes, and we had both, it didn't matter. There always seemed to be the right person to chat to them. What we had as a group was clearly so good that anyone who came along wanted in. It was good news in action. And in time those questions of life were asked and duly answered. I know I get boring about this, but when I speak about the importance of church and our one another life together, it's not just theory. This stuff actually works. It's dynamite, it's dunamis. A good group dynamic is extremely attractive. A varied group provides a lot of different attachment points. A large group who all agree is a whole lot more impressive than a single voice trying to make a point. And it lasts. Forty years on, and Carol will tell you what a rubbish correspondent I am, how bad I am keeping up with friends. Forty years on, I'm still close friends with probably about ten of those people. And you'll see exactly the same group dynamic, group evangelism strengths in the Alpha course. Week by week, people chat over food, listen to a talk, discuss what they think, what they feel in little groups. And as the trust in each group grows, they begin to share more personal things. Before the course is over, it's not uncommon for lifelong friendships to have been formed. It's extremely common for people to ask if they can come again. But you've done it. You've done the course. Oh, well, can I come again? Yeah, but but you've done it. Oh, it's, it's not the course, it's the people. Group evangelism in our culture seems to be a whole lot more effective than the individual kind. If you have a Billy Graham in your church, then by all means leave the evangelism to him and get your pastoral structures ready for massive growth. If not, I suggest it's group evangelism that will win souls every time. Because Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, by this everyone will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. And the eagle-eyed among you have already spotted the link in to what we've been talking about for several weeks, the Exodus mindset. At the first Pentecost, Israel were called to be fruitful for God as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests among all the other nations, because all the earth belongs to God but all the instruction they got as to how to reach people for God was simply to be different, more just, more loving, more caring for the poor, more dutiful to parents, etc., etc. Now, one person doing this stuff might be noticed. A whole nation doing it would make the world sit up and take notice. And I want to suggest that God's plan to reach the world hasn't changed that much in the New Testament either with the new Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came, so we as a people can be different in a good way. People who seem to have let the Holy Spirit make them weird. That's not what I mean. One person filled not only with power to heal and prophesy, and all that good stuff, but also chock full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control might be noticed. A whole church full of people who look like that will make the world sit up and take notice. And my final G, rather quickly, is number four, God's evangelism. That's a strange term, isn't it? but it's become a highly important concept, what the theologians nowadays call the Missio Dei. They had to put it into Latin, even though it was only invented 10 years ago, because it sounds posh in in Latin. The Missio Dei, a new idea in missiology, only decades old, recognizing world mission as primarily God's mission, not our own. Yet, it's pre-echoed by an older poem, by a guy called Francis Thompson, who died over a century ago, It's called The Hound of Heaven, and it opens like this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter upvisted hopes I sped, and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee, who betrayest me? When we engage in sharing our faith with others, we're involving ourselves in something that God is already doing. In his book, The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative, Christopher Wright puts it like this. Our mission means our committed participation as God's people, at God's invitation and command, in God's own mission, within the history of God's world, for the redemption of God's creation. Put it like that, it doesn't sound terribly difficult, does it? Jesus said John five nineteen, I only do what I see my father doing. And John twelve forty nine, I don't speak for myself, but my father has commanded me what to say. And I believe that a lot of the knottier problems we perceive in evangelism will simply come undone as we come to see that we aren't required to make things happen only to involve ourselves in what God is already doing. As Ephesians 2 verse 10 puts it, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. This then, it seems to me, is the core of evangelism as God wants it done. Not that we make something of nothing, not that we make things happen, not that we force ourselves to do what is entirely unnatural for us, but that we simply step in to what He is already doing and in the process realize with joy what we were created for. We don't run alone up the mountain after the lost sheep, we merely wait by arrangement in the right place, for the hound of heaven to drive them into our arms. And I mean our arms, not individually, but as a people. Is there more to say about the dreaded E word? Of course there is. But I think that's enough to be going on with. Let's see an end to guilt evangelism forever. And instead, let's see a full embracing of gift evangelism group evangelism, God's evangelism. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we take seriously your great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, into the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to do everything you commanded them, including the same process, repeating and repeating. We take it seriously, but we feel ill-equipped, confused, under-instructed, over-instructed. The failures of the past Weigh heavy on our hearts. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to make a clean sweep of our thinking and bring it back to basics again. We want to pray that we will be good news in the world so that those questions will be asked. And by your Spirit, you will empower us to answer them as they come. We want to pray that you will form us as a church into a community that is so inviting. That people who completely disagree just want to be part of it. And then you'll get them bit by bit, by bit, by bit.